0: We are unveiling a new Q&A podcast in two weeks with a new host and all new guests, but with the same goal of giving you the opportunity to hear from intriguing people who are making things happen. But this week, here's an episode from our Afterwards podcast archive from October 2023 with Martin Barron, former executive editor of The Washington Post, on his book, Collision of Power. He's interviewed by
1: NPR's media correspondent, David Folkenflik. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. And before we get to this week's episode, I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Q&A, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org/connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org/connect. Thank you.
0: Martin Barron, of course, has been the uh, top editor at such newspapers as the Miami Herald, uh, the Boston Globe, and uh, most recently the Washington Post. adamant along the way that the journalist isn't the story, but Marty Barron, you decided to write your own. Uh, tell us how you came to the decision to write this memoir titled Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post.
1: Well, I knew uh, that I was living through history, an important moment in history for the United States and an important moment, moment for uh, the press and for the Washington Post. Uh, so um, the paper was sold by a family that had owned it, the Graham family, for 80 years. uh, was then sold uh, to one of the richest people in the world. And then along comes uh, a presidential candidate, unlike any we'd ever seen before, and a president, unlike any we'd ever seen before. And so I was living through history, an important moment, as I say, in American history and for democracy. And um, I thought somebody should tell that story. I was at the Post for more than eight years uh, during that story. And um, I think at some point somebody should tell that story, and I was the one to do it.
0: You know, you had been previously, as I mentioned, at these other papers, at the Boston Globe, although an important regional newspaper, not one followed by all of America, you really became much more of a household name and figure, thanks to the movie Spotlight, which looked at what your enterprising uh, core of investigative reporters did to expose the astonishing range of the child abuse crisis in the Catholic Church uh, in Boston, and as it turned out, beyond. what was it like to have been this in, one of the key subjects of this major Hollywood film uh, before ascending to the national scene in, in sort of your own right as you did at the Washington Post?
1: Yeah, well, the film actually came out uh, not long after I uh, joined the Post. So I joined the Post in uh, the beginning of 2013 and the movie came out, it was a 2015 movie. So um, it came out as I was the Post. Uh, it was, uh, look, I mean, I don't think any journalist. Uh, does or should work to be portrayed in a movie. And we certainly did not do that at the at the Boston Globe. In fact, the first entreaties that we got from Hollywood to have a movie made, we rejected. Uh, but then, many years later, we were approached again. And um, we thought it was uh, an important story to be told, uh, the story of how investigative reporting works, the story of uh, listening to, to survivors, uh, holding powerful institutions to account, Um, basically explaining how investigative reporting works and why it's important in this country. So uh, that, to me, was the importance of the movie. Obviously, it gave me some degree of celebrity, I guess, uh, minor celebrity, I would say. Uh, But um, uh, it's not something I expected, not something I was seeking. Uh, It just happened to me. Um, And you try to use it for a good purpose. Uh, I try to use it for the purpose of talking about the role of an independent and free press in this country uh, and frankly, around the world. So um, that's what I, that's what I endeavored to do with that, um, that recognition in the movie.
0: And the timing of course, being important as you corrected me for that. And I appreciate that beyond that question, beyond that, uh, <laughs> that that I'm sure out of body experience in some ways for you, what was uh, it like to take the step from going from this, you know, incredible, important legacy newspaper, the Boston Globe, to something of the stature of the Washington Post. The journalism in some ways is the same. What made this so different?
1: Well, I was joining a a newspaper that uh, had a national and international reputation. Uh, It was almost certainly best known for its role in the Watergate investigation, which uh, ended up bringing down a president of the United States. Um, It uh, had been even if it had not been read around the country, uh, or people around the country were certainly familiar with it, had an image of the Washington Post uh, from perhaps the movie All the President's Men uh, that was about the Watergate investigation. Uh, and so, you know, you, and you're moving to the I was moving to the nation's capital uh, and knew that I was beco- be covering the most important stories in the country on a regular basis. And so um, you recognize that there's a huge responsibility there obviously um i was sort of confronting the legacy of ben bradley a, a legendary editor of the of the washington post and people asked me whether i was intimidated by that and and i said that i wasn't intimidated by it but i was inspired by it and that is in fact the case so um there was a legacy that i uh i felt that i needed to uphold a certain set of institutional standards uh, that had been set down by the Graham family and by Ben Bradley, by his successors as editor as well. And, um, and so it's a huge weight on your shoulder, uh, frankly. And, uh, I felt that going to the post, uh, but I also knew that they had an enormous number of, uh, financial difficulties at the time, uh, that they were, um, uh, kind of at sea as many, uh, news organizations were in this country, particularly newspapers, uh, and that it was going to be an enormous challenge. What were the stakes for you personally and professionally well uh i was secure at the, at the boston globe although i was frankly ready to move on i had been there for 11 and a half years it seemed like a good time to move on and they too were facing enormous financial pressures although we had recovered really from the worst um, and um, you never know how things are going to work out uh, once you go to a new uh, news organization. Um, they may not like you, you may not like the place, uh, um, all of that. Uh, but I had taken risks, uh, before in my, my career. Uh, I had left the Los Angeles Times where I was, had worked for 17 years and I went to the New York Times. You never know how that's going to work out. Uh, then I went to, to, uh, in 2000, in 2000, I went to the Miami Herald to be editor there working for a, a new, a publisher who, who was new to me at the time. Uh, and then I went to the Boston Globe, uh, where I really didn't know—I knew hardly anybody in the city. Really, only one couple, uh, and I knew nobody in the in the newsroom. And so um, that was a risk. So I was accustomed to risks, and I felt that, that this was one that was well worth taking, both profesh- professionally for me, and that I thought, uh, you know, if I did a good job, that uh, we could do something really worthwhile for the Washington Post and. In doing something worthwhile for the Washington Post, I felt that we would be doing something worthwhile for the country.
0: You were hired, if I recall correctly, by uh, by uh, one of the sort of scions, in a sense, of the Graham family. Uh, Catherine Weymouth was the publisher at the time, the niece of Don Graham, the former uh, chairman of uh, of that company, uh, and she brought you on board relatively soon in your tenure there uh she met with you to explain that she would not be your boss any longer and in fact there would be a transition in ownership what what happened and how did you absorb this new information
1: uh she invited me to uh, to have a drink at a hotel across the street from the what was then the post headquarters sort of iconic building in that in that sense Um, and, uh, that was surprising to me because it was at five, about five o'clock. We didn't normally have drinks at five o'clock. I was busy. Um, that's about getting close to deadline time. Uh, and so I had a sense that something might be up, you know, you develop a second sense after a while in this business. I'd gone through a lot of turmoil in the, in the news business. And, um, you know, when somebody says, let's have a drink at five o'clock and you're not expecting it, you think something might be up. But I did not expect this. Uh, I did not expect that the Graham family would be selling the Post. I don't think anybody expected that. Uh, the family had been incredibly devoted to the Post uh, for 80 years. Um, the, parent, the name of the parent company was the Washington Post Company. And the name of our newspaper was the Washington Post. So um, uh, this was a total surprise to me. Um, you know, my feelings were mixed at the time. I, I actually, I guess my initial reaction was, uh that uh well first of all shock but second of all uh that it might be good uh for the post uh the truth is that we had or at least the Graham family and everybody had pretty much run out of ideas for how to turn the place around uh and we were facing an enormous number of cuts Uh, I was beginning to develop plans for the next year budget plans and they called for more cuts and staff I had already done about I was expected to do about cutting 35 people in our newsroom in the first year. They said they were going easy on me. And then the second year was going to be more like uh, 50 um, or more. And I expected that perpetually, frankly. So I was somewhat encouraged that somebody who uh, who had a reputation for growth would be purchasing the post, that he would invest, that he would come with some new ideas because Lord knows we needed a lot of fresh ideas in the business. So I thought it would be it might be good for the post, but I didn't know if it was going to be good for me. Uh the usual equation is uh new owner, new editor. Uh so uh, you know, I expected the, that I might be uh, I might be dismissed and uh that Jeff Bezos would find a new editor.
0: Not what happened, as it turned out. Uh you know, Bezos in some ways one could look empirically at you know strands from a Wikipedia entry and say, well, here's a guy who uh Should have been a walking conflict of interest who had so much business in front of the government and wanted more who turned out wanted to develop things in washington dc who turned out got involved in personal scandal and controversies with an ensuing president but there's a constant thread through the book about you know it's really an admiration of who the kinds of values bezos expressed and also the kind of civic leader he turned out to be talk a little bit about that what what is there that is so so admirable about Jeff Bezos, but also of his stewardship of this important press institution?
1: Yeah, I guess this is a surprise for a lot of people because a lot of people have a, a clear image of him based on what they've read or seen or seen in a different context than the Washington Post. Uh, what I wrote about was my own personal experience with him. What I personally observed at the Washington Post is his ownership, his his uh his management of the of the place and of me and other people on the staff. And so, um, you know, I mean, uh, certainly he has huge commercial interests. I mean, there's no doubting that. And he's a controversial figure for a variety of reasons, from labor practices at Amazon to intrusions into privacy, to their lobbying efforts in Washington, you name it, their whole range of things. So um, and it was our duty to investigate all that, of course, uh, and to continue doing so despite his ownership. Even so, uh, my experience was that he um, uh, he was going to going to give us our independence and did give us our independence uh, completely. He said at his first uh, meeting with the staff and a town hall meeting uh, that we could cover him and cover Amazon any way we'd liked, uh without any interference on his part. And uh, he reiterated that on several occasions to me. Uh, and that's exactly what we did. Uh, we certainly put it to the test. We covered aggressively issues at Amazon. We covered aggressively, um, you know, all aspects of that company and of him, his own personal life when he got divorced and had a, you know, had an affair and um, you name it. Um, and he did this uh, while coming under tremendous pressure from um, Donald Trump, who was was initially the presidential candidate and then president, uh, clearly, I would say, the most powerful person in the world and was who was regularly attacking Jeff Bezos and seeking to undermine his his business um, and clearly the primary source of his wealth. So um, and he stood by us uh, throughout the whole time. He never he never caved. Uh, He never submitted to that pressure. Uh, He didn't interfere in our in in the content of our coverage in any way, Uh, even when it was about Amazon, when it was about himself. Uh, in no instance, did he, did he interfere in the coverage?
0: Seemed to me over time as an outside observer that if anything, uh, your coverage of Amazon only became more rigorous and and tougher and more, more deeply diving into questions that Amazon as a corporation may not have wanted, uh, great public scrutiny, right? That, that you guys felt comfortable doing that. Let's talk, let's get into the journalism. Uh, that you experience and let's start at with an early example of it the the question of barton gelman a former washington post uh, uh national security reporter uh, walks in with what is in some ways this one of the scoops of the new century uh and it's what you know people now think of as the snowden papers talk about the uh challenge that that presented and the opportunity it afforded you as a relatively new editor at the post
1: Yeah, well, Bart came into our newsroom and he uh, informed us that he had these incredibly sensitive documents or access to them or was going to get access to them and um, and that he wanted to know. And they were going to reveal a um, a surveillance regime on the part of the intelligence community in the United States, uh, a surveillance practices that swept in a lot of information about American citizens uh, as well as on citizens uh, around the world. Um, and he wanted to know whether this is something that we would be willing to publish and we listened to him he was very careful he was very thoughtful uh he was very cautious extremely cautious um and um you know I I it was clear to me that he was explaining something that would be of Uh, not just a curiosity, but actually of true public interest. Uh, Because one thing I think Americans value and that I personally value is uh, privacy. Uh, And I think we should value privacy in this country. And uh, this was an exceptional intrusion into the privacy of Americans. And um, so, you know, one of our primary uh, principles in publishing um, national security information is whether there's a true public interest at stake. Uh, so I indicated that, uh, we were willing to go ahead with that. Um, and then that evening I thought a lot about it, um, because look, I mean, this is huge, hugely sensitive information, the most confidential information in the U.S. government. It comes, it came at a time of, uh, deep cons- public concern about terrorism. Uh, uh, I had lived through 9-11, of course, I had been in Boston at the time. Uh, two of the planes flew out of Logan Airport in Boston. Those two planes are the ones that hit the World Trade Center towers. Uh, I was very sensitive to that. Um, and so, you know, I did, I was very concerned that we do the right thing, that we not, uh, endanger national security, but also that we make the public aware of, uh, a level of surveillance that, uh, was certainly not, certainly not public knowledge, and which I don't think that a lot of Americans would have approved of if they had known. And so I thought a lot about it that evening. I um, did some research. I was uh, I had printed out the Espionage Act of 1917. I was highlighting it. I thought more about it. Uh, I was always I was thinking maybe I should change course. But I, as I thought more about it, I thought, no, I think this is the right thing to do. Um, uh, Why would you look at
0: Why did you print out the Espionage Act? Why was it important for the executive editor of the Washington Post to look at the actual text of that century-old uh, law to help because, gauge whether or not this was right to print?
1: Because there's a, there was a risk uh, to the institution that I represented uh, uh, to the Washington Post. It could have suffered huge fines. Uh, it's possible that people on staff uh, uh, including ownership, could have been sent to prison. Uh, we certainly, could it's possible that we could have been prosecuted. That had not happened in the history of the United States, uh, but it didn't mean that it couldn't happen. And so I thought that I should um, take a look at the law and think about it and think about the the risks that publication posed to the institution. I think that's the responsible thing to do. Um, and, um, you know, and I did think about it, and and I knew that this was a, um, this was putting the institution potentially at risk. Uh, and ultimately, you know, within days, I, I told, um, my publisher, Catherine Weymouth, uh, and the CEO of the parent company, Don Graham. Uh, well, I told, I told Catherine Weymouth, uh, she told Don Graham and, um, and they trusted us to make the right call and they did not interfere. Um, they trusted my judgment. They trusted Bart's judgment and, uh, allowed us to proceed.
0: You talk about the importance of privacy, uh, which I think was a key element of what was shown that under, in the Obama years, uh, that that was still being sort of uh, disregarded in some ways when national security was invoked uh, by senior intelligence officials and the like. I wondered if we could play out that question uh, as it uh, confronted you in, in, in the years that followed. As it turned out, so much hacking happened uh, of uh, key political figures in the 2016 race, uh, particularly targeting the Democrats as a source of disruption and then more, uh, that it was a treasure trove for news organizations as well as for political actors on the scene. And if I recall correctly, the Post was among those that you know reported aggressively when it felt the news was warranted. How do you, in retrospect, uh, you come down on that, about the use of such materials and about the the sort of principles that should guide the use of such materials, given that it's both revelatory and uh, incredibly intrusive?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's a really important question that the press needs to grapple with. Um, uh, We were the first to report that the Democratic National Committee uh, computers had been hacked. Um, We certainly raised the question, um, the likelihood that this was done by Russia. Um, Russia, in some sort of Collaboration, maybe not formal but indirect, uh, was uh, providing information to WikiLeaks, which then released that information. Um, and and a lot of these emails very hard to ignore. You can't really ignore those emails. You can't pretend that that didn't happen. And in fact, uh, those emails were creating a stir even within the Democratic uh, Party. Uh, whether we uh, and we're going to create a controversy whether we were interested in publishing them or not. Uh, the reality is that they uh suggested that the Democratic National Committee its leadership uh was favoring the Hillary Clinton candidacy over Bernie Sanders um and ultimately they revealed uh some uh speeches that uh Hillary Clinton had given on Wall Street and how much she was paid for those speeches and the content of those speeches which was highly controversial as well um and uh so I don't think we could just ignore that at the same time though I mean I think that we Probably, if, if I were to do this over again, is that I would devote as much in the way of resources to the origin of that, to the to the hacking itself, to the reasons for the hacking, to the motives for that hacking, um, the, as as I as we did to uh, the content of those emails. So I think we needed to do both, um, and I think we focused overwhelmingly on the content of the emails. We certainly highlighted that Russia was likely involved. But, you know, we uh, we did less on that at the time than we did on uh, the content of the emails. And part of the reason for that is that the intelligence leadership was unwilling at that point to say that Russia was responsible for that or that it happened for nefarious purposes. Uh, but it did seem, um, you know, it, it emerged, of course, that Russia was seeking to Uh, help the Trump campaign. Uh, That was the ultimate conclusion of the intelligence community. And I think that that's something, that's a theme that we should have uh, emphasized more forcefully uh, sooner in the coverage of that campaign.
0: It's funny, I remember a conversation I had with Donna Brazil, who is a top Democratic Party leader, as well as a CNN pundit at the time. And she just said, you know, David, I'm not going to uh, respond to the substance of the questions, which I personally found pretty interesting uh, in the moment uh, because I don't wanna give credence the idea that it's okay for foreign actors to uh, steal essentially private communications. And you know that did set me back. That made me think a little bit about the story I was doing uh, at the time. And it made me think about this question. Obviously we've all now had to think about this question a lot. Does it matter if such material comes from somebody who presents as a whistleblower as uh, Edward Snowden did Or somebody who presents as a chaos creator as the you know agents acting on behalf of the russian government does or does it matter most that the material itself is of important public knowledge
1: yeah well those are all really good questions david um i think that's something we have to grapple with as i said i don't see how we can ignore the information uh i recognize that our appetite for that information is um going to be an incentive for people to hack in the first place because they know that we're going to eat it up and that we're going to publish it and we're going to jump on it and all of that i do think that as i say what i think that we need to do is really balance that uh with our coverage of the motives for that uh information being released in the first place and so i think that's what we we should have done more of that uh um in that particular presidential election
0: so let's turn to Trump now. There's a moment in the book where you write that uh, in preparation for Trump, I could be getting the timing slightly off, but I think it was after he was elected, but before he took office, that you set aside, I believe, five half dozen books to read. Among them, Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny, uh, another about how democracies fall apart and a few others. What did you read and what did you take from your self-assigned uh, curriculum there?
1: Uh, well, I took from that that uh, Trump had uh, real authoritarian impulses, um, that a lot of what he had said and a lot of what he had done uh, suggested that he uh, he not only admired authoritarian leaders around the world, which he had kind of made clear at that point, but that he actually would like to have authoritarian powers. Um, and so I was very sensitive to um, the kinds of measures that he might put in place that would allow him to to act in a more authoritarian, authoritarian way. Um, there were a lot. I mean, his, uh, I think, condoning of violence at his rallies was an example of that. He always found an excuse for that violence, usually by saying, uh, well, they were angry, as if that were some sort of justification for violence, uh, which, of course, it's not. Um, His admiration for certain foreign leaders, his willingness to uh, demonize uh, certainly the press, but uh, demonize the language that he used uh, about globalists and all of that sort of thing, um, some of which actually verged on being um, anti-Semitic, I think you could say. Um, But um, so all of that, I think, uh, suggested that he... uh, he had authoritarian tendencies and that that was something that needed to inform our reporting on him. Um, And I needed to keep, I needed to keep that in mind.
0: It sounds like you wanted to go, you were and wanted to go in very clear eyed about what you perceived his, his operating framework and instinctive uh, approach to power was. Yet when asked about your, your own approach to this, you said, we're not going to war, we're going to work. Tell me what, you meant by that and then about the public discussion that ensued.
1: Sure, Uh, well, keep in mind on the very first day of Trump's presidency, he went to the CIA and speaking to agents there in front of a memorial for fallen CIA agents, um, what did he do? He decided to talk about the press Uh, and he said, as you know, I'm at war with the media. Um, The message that I took from that is that he was seeking to enlist those agents in his own war with the media because here it is here he was the president of the United States who um who was at war um and and they worked for the president of the United States so um a couple of weeks later I was asked uh for my reaction and I said we're not at war with the administration we are at work so what did I mean by that I meant that uh, we have to remember what our uh, fundamental mission is here in, in our profession. And we have to think back to um, why we have a First Amendment in this country, why we have a free and independent press in this country. And, um, you know, James Madison, who was the principal author of the, of the First Amendment, he talked about freely examining public characters and measures. So let's dissect that. Um, first of all, free, uh, freely, uh, operating independently, examining meaning it's not stenography, meaning we actually hold government officials to account. We hold politicians to account. We hold uh, the people, the powerful individuals and institutions that influence public policy to account. Uh, So um, examining uh, the public characters are the politicians, the the other government officials and the people who influence them. uh, And the measures are the policies uh, that are implemented so that is why we have a first amendment in this country uh that was the original intent uh it's something that i believe any president should understand particularly if they're taking a they an oath to the constitution of the united states which they do um and uh it's something that we in the press have to always keep in mind uh our job is not stenography it is journalism and journalism goes beyond uh simply recording what people say but looking at really looking at who's behind these policies, who are the policies intended to benefit? What kind of practical impact will they have? um, What are the motives? You name it, Uh, what all all of these sorts of things. And that's what um, what I wanted us to do. And so my view is that it's not a war. It's work. It's that is our work. It's been our work from the very beginning. And so um, that was the statement that i was making i'm not doing we're not doing this out of any animus toward donald trump we're not doing it out of this is something that was done with previous presidents as well it always has been um any fair examination of the history of the washington post or other media organizations and even at the local level um that is what the press has done and what it should do uh so my view is this is not war this is work
0: and yet it, it it sparked in some quarters, including some newsrooms, uh, including some corners of your newsroom, uh, the response that, you know, this isn't enough. This isn't sufficient to meet the moment. Uh, you know, media critics like Jay, Jay Rosen uh, uh, made that case, but there are journalists who, who would argue that as well. Why, in your view, is that wrong? Why, in your view, is it inappropriate, a- a- as it comes across strongly in the pages of this book, to... Step outside conventional values in the face of uh, an almost unprecedented uh, stance from uh, a present administration towards the, the the not just the credibility but the legitimacy of the press itself.
1: Yeah, well, I think that if we um, if we present ourselves as partisans, if we are partisans, uh, then we lose credibility with the public um our our job is not to um our job is to hold all politicians to account i don't care what party they're in uh i don't care what their ideology is um if it's a democratic president we have an obligation to do that as well uh so i don't see ourselves as being in a a war here and i don't think it's actually necessary in fact i think it's um it's destructive um and it erodes public confidence and if we are seen as, as if we are seen as partisans if we act like partisans um and if we see ourselves in a war then we begin to act like partisans and i don't want us to act like partisans i want us to just be journalists um and that is to uh as i say uh certainly to do a lot of to do a lot of reporting to be rigorous to be comprehensive to understand that our goal is to gather the facts to get at the truth as best we can and uh, and then tell the public what we've really found. Uh, we're not hiding that from the public. There's no point in doing all this reporting unless we're going to tell the public what we fa- what we found. Um, so uh, I think that it, that works really well. And I think it I mean, I think also think our history, uh, the history of the press shows that it does have a huge impact. Uh, I can point to a lot of journalism that had huge impact, whether it's the Watergate investigation at The Washington Post, the Pentagon Papers work at The, at the New York Times whole range of coverage over a long period of time uh that was not partisan in nature that was um uh simply fulfilling our mission as journalists and um i think that that has a lot more credibility uh, with the public and should have a lot more credibility with the public and as soon as we forget as soon as we think that we are uh warriors as opposed to journalists uh i think we're going down the wrong path
0: Well, and certainly, uh, you know, during your your tenure, during the Trump uh, term, uh, the Post did an astonishing array of not just political coverage, but accountability reporting, investigative reporting, uh, you know, whether it involved the Secret Service, uh, it involved uh, questions about what was happening on the border with uh, with Mexico and the treatment of people coming into this country uh, without documentation or legal status. Uh, Or whether it was David Farenthold, essentially crowdsourcing questions about what Trump had done with charitable donations. Talk a little bit about the inventiveness that went into what the Post did in trying to surround this, uh, you know, completely unconventional uh, politician at the head of the levers of the American government.
1: Well, a lot of it was traditional and some of it was uh new so what david fahrenhold did uh for example was was new i mean initially we reported on you know trump had avoided had, had, had ducked out of a debate and he held a rally said he was going to give do- a donation to veterans groups uh and all david did was really just follow up uh and try to find out um okay where'd the money go uh who was it given to uh and the Trump camp, the Trump uh, team, couldn't give a straight answer uh, as to where the money went. Uh, so he went onto social media, which in a previous era would not have been available to us, uh, to find out asking whether any veterans groups got this money, and uh, and he wasn't hearing back that anybody got the money. So uh, I mean, just all to of stop, a sudden, just to stop you th- for a
0: second, Marty, I mean, he took, if I recall correctly, a notepad in which he would write things out. And say this is what i got can you yeah. guys add to it you know it was yeah. it was almost as though you were sitting over the reporter's shoulder watching him do his work it was right. incredibly engaging uh almost entertaining gamification of the 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 idea of some rather serious reporting
1: uh that's true that's true and david was uh, brilliant at it and inventive uh and um uh, and came up with some real creative approaches to, to practicing journalism. And they worked in the current era uh, where social media is so important. Uh, and it did give them insight into what he had and what he didn't have uh, and to see whether they could add to his his knowledge. And um, it did force uh, Donald Trump to actually uh, distribute that money. Um, and he finally informed him that he had. I mean, they had said they had the Trump team had already said that they already had already done that. Uh, but there was no evidence that it had. And then um, and then they did it after he he reported on all that.
0: Throughout the book, you're very generous uh, about pointing out the insights and the muscularity of the reporting and the editing of your colleagues there. It did seem as though with Farenthold, there was one moment at which you said, well, if he's doing this, meaning Trump, with this one charity, what's to say he's not doing this with all kinds of other things? And sort of almost launched Farenthold on a cottage industry of, of reports uh, on this. How important uh, is, you know, you you were editor of the Globe for, I think, 11 years and of the Post for nine, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, how important? Go ahead. Yeah, I'm
1: sorry. A little over eight. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. A little over eight. Uh, how important is the tone set from the top for an editor? How much can you steer these battleships uh, uh, in appreciable ways over the course of a tenure?
1: Yeah, well, a newsroom is a collaborative enterprise. Uh, you work together. I think that's um, it's one of the things maybe that's being lost uh, when people are not actually in the office. So I often use the example of this Fahrenheit example. So we ran into each other at the elevator bank. Uh, I congratulated David on the work that he had done, talked about how great it was. And then as I was speaking, I don't know, it just occurred to me to ask him. I said, well, if uh, Trump did this sort of thing with, some, with something that was so public, what really happened with all his his supposed charitable donations that were done that were supposedly made without a lot of public attention and I don't think it would have occurred to me really to ask unless I had just bumped into David at the elevator bank um and he took that and he ran with it um and he recognized I think a good idea and um and did a brilliant job job with that Uh, that kind of serendipity um happens a lot in newsrooms at least when people were actually showing up in newsrooms physically uh and i think it's incredibly incredibly important so uh the editor can have a tremendous influence in a lot of different ways certainly you can order up stories but it's better to actually have conversations with people on the staff ask a lot of questions i think it's important to just ask questions and draw people out to see what are the unanswered uh issues so same with the the secret service uh carol Lennig had written a couple of stories about the secret service that showed uh real mishaps and blunders on their part and i you know i asked carol whether this was uh part of a bigger pattern whether this is there's a systemic problem at the secret service because these were incredibly embarrassing incidents And uh, we held a meeting and uh, Carol indicated that she had leads on some other stories and that it did look like a bigger, bigger problem. And so um, we then there was a group of editors in my office and we authorized her to spend full time on that. And she did and uh, and produced a tremendous series of stories about the Secret Service and its uh, blunders. And um, and that won a Pulitzer Prize for her and for The Washington Post.
0: You know, once I'm hearing you say this out loud, it does remind me a little bit of uh, the genesis of, of course, the Great Spotlight reporting on the Catholic Church. How much did that, uh, prompted in part by your prodding very, I mean, really at the very opening stanzas of your tenure as editor in Boston, how much did that influence your thinking about things systemically in that way?
1: Uh, well, I was uh, really from the very beginning. First, I just wanted to get to the basic facts. Uh, and I mean, I think it's really important for people in editing roles and reporters as well to just keep asking questions like, what don't we know? What do we need to know? Uh, what are the unanswered questions? To what extent has has truth been left uh, unknown? Uh, is there a way to get at it? So in the case of the Catholic Church, uh, when I arrived in Boston, there was a column written by fantastic columnist Eileen McNamara, uh she talked about this case of a priest having been accused of abusing uh as many as 80 kids uh and at the end of the column she said the truth may never be known because these documents that might reveal it were um under court seal um and at the time the lawyer for the plaintiff said the cardinal himself was aware of this abuse and yet reassigned this priest from parish to parish without telling anybody and the archdiocese denied it uh said it was absolutely not true and so at my first meeting on on my first day uh, working at the Boston Globe, um, everybody talked about at their meeting about what they were doing for the day. And nobody happened to mention this particular case. And I said, um, well, what about this? I mean, this is an incredibly important story. Um, if it's true that the cardinal really knew about this, uh, this abuse and reassigned this priest and essentially enabled him to abuse again and again and uh, and I asked, can't we get at the truth? Can't we get it beyond beyond one side saying one thing and one side saying something else? And um, and people pointed out that the documents were under seal. And I said that I knew that because I would read that. But had we thought about going to court uh, to get those documents, uh, arguing that there's a public interest in it? and um certainly people were surprised to hear that suggestion at that first meeting uh but we did talk to our lawyer later and then we launched a parallel investigation journalistic investigation talking to survivors talking to lawyers talking to uh anybody we could priests uh and um and we produced the that set of stories beginning in january of 2002 um and over the course of the next year and a half We probably produced about 900 stories, um, and, uh, and we can still see the impact of that, that set of stories today.
0: Very much so. That idea of can't we get at the truth undergirds much of what you present in this book of your, your experience, your perspective of your years, uh, at the post to take it back to the Trump years. It seems to me that you were editor at a time when you as an editor, the post as a newsroom, we all, as part of this nation experienced sort of a series of, uh, I don't know, shocks to the system, uh, the election of Trump and the the uh, just completely uh, unprecedented nature of that administration from stem to stern, really, you know, until, you know, what we saw January 6th on his way out. The Me Too movement that really uh, uh, exploded, uh, I would say, in 2017, starting really 2016 uh, and changing the nature of how many journalists looked at reporting on questions of Uh, abuse of, mistreatment of, harassment of women uh, in the workplace and beyond. And then, of course, the social justice movement that exploded in the streets, but really also in the newsrooms across the country uh, uh, with the murder of George Floyd and and subsequent events and revelations uh, about how law enforcement and other systems work. It seemed to me that that was in a relatively short number of years, some pretty major social uh, upheaval and not just recalibration, but rethinking uh tectonic plates on the move at times in ways that were hard for news leaders to uh manage as their own journalists started questioning prior assumptions how did that play out at the post and how did that play out for you uh as the news executive atop that newsroom
1: yeah uh well you know i mean i think our that covers a lot of subjects there so um played out a little bit different from one subject to the next but um You know, I mean, I think that um, people started to feel a need to express uh, themselves more, uh, particularly on social media. Uh, They had strong views about what was happening in this country in terms of racial justice, in terms of uh, justice for women who had been harassed or assaulted, uh, uh, obviously, uh, for, um, you know, all of the uh, what was happening in the Trump administration, where there appeared to be an attack or was an attack on Basic, uh, basic uh, public civility uh, on um, on uh, free expression on norms of political discourse, uh, all of that um, on civil rights. Uh, people felt uh, so. Um, so I think people were motivated to um, express themselves more, uh, particularly on social media, um, and that was not something that I was in favor of. Uh, I remain strongly opposed to that. I don't think it's helpful to us. I keep asking people, you know, can you show me the journalist tweet that changed the world? I haven't seen one yet, Uh, but I have seen a lot of journalism that's done a lot of good. Um, And it does go back to reporting. Let's find out what the facts are. Let's tell people what the the facts are. Ultimately, the public gets to make these decisions about what to do, what we where we where we head, where we're heading as a society who we elect to govern us. All of that not our call to make that uh, that decision. Our our job is to give people the information they need and deserve to know uh, in a democracy. And so that's where I think we that's our lane. Uh, And I think we should stay in that lane and not become um, those of us who work in the news department uh, should not, as opposed to, let's say, opinion writers and editorial writers and people like that. uh, We should be in the stay in the lane of reporting, reporting hard, reporting aggressively, doing our job um, and telling the public what we found find uh, directly, forthrightly, unflinchingly. Um, And I think there's a lot that uh, can be accomplished with that. It has been throughout history. That kind of reporting has accomplished a lot. And um, I haven't seen much accomplished by going on social media and expressing people's personal views.
0: In fact, you write here, uh, too often, uh, this is from your book, too often it became a venue for personal opinions, advocacy, anger snark, sniping, failed humor, virtue signaling, personal animus, and a rush to judgment, never more so than during the Trump years. There came a point where colleagues, your colleagues, my colleagues, people in other newsrooms, not all, but some, you know, really felt that being forthright and being uh, truthful required in some ways uh, uh, something that went beyond a strict recitation of facts or or syntheses of analyses, and it it required in some ways lived experience and and personal uh, personal understanding of things to make things more powerful and authentic, and that that was the distance between the media and the audience they felt. You come out in a different place in this book. Um, um, Explain why.
1: I think uh, people's personal experiences are highly relevant. That's why we really need a diverse staff in a newsroom. Uh, We need people from all different backgrounds uh, who have lived different lives. Uh, There are stories that other people will detect that I wouldn't even be aware of. Uh, There are perspectives that other people have that I couldn't possibly have. Uh, we should bring that all, all, all of that should be brought into our newsroom and we should discuss that among ourselves and talk about that as the kinds of stories that we should pursue and how we should pursue those stories and things like that. Uh, but the stories that we do, they have to conform to institutional standards. These are well-established standards in our newsrooms. Um, and, uh, you know, when you walk into the Washington Post, there's a name, the Washington Post on the building. Uh, what does that mean? Does that mean something? Uh, or does it mean nothing? Uh, are we just a random collection of individuals working in a building that has Washington Post on its name? Or, uh, does working in that building mean that we actually work as a team, that we work collaboratively, uh, that we discuss things collectively, that we make, that we make, uh, decisions in a collaborative way, as opposed to each individual expressing themselves on social media? Um however they want, whenever they want, on whatever subject they want, um, all of that. Um, Generally, impulsively, uh, instantaneously, um, that to me is not journalism. Uh, That's something else entirely. In many instances, it's advocacy. And uh, that's not our role. Uh, I think we can accomplish a lot if we discuss all of this together. We as I said, we need a very diverse staff. We need people from different backgrounds. They do need to bring up these subjects so that we can discuss them. They can inform our coverage and do inform our coverage. Um, but every person just going off on their own, doing their own thing, means that you're not really functioning as, an, as you're not functioning as an institution. It's just a a bunch of individuals who work there uh, saying whatever it is they want, uh however they want, whatever they want.
0: So let's take a stock for a moment about uh, uh, where the Trump years and its uh, successors have left us. Uh, we are at a time where it feels like we are awash with misinformation. And you know whether it's uh, recent events in Israel and uh, Gaza, whether it's uh, uh, the fight between Ukraine and, and Russia, uh, questions about vaccines in this country, questions about the elections past and upcoming, uh, And even as The Post and other media organizations do what they are laboring their best to do, uh, which is rigorous, factual-based reporting, uh, they are also fallible. How do we, at a time of so many attacks on the media and its credibility, how does the press or journalists uh, work to establish credibility uh, with more than those who feel that their rooting interests are represented in any given story?
1: Yeah, well, it's a fundamental question for our our profession right now, clearly very important. Um, I think, um, uh, first of all, it's important to remember something that you just said, and that is we are fallible. We are human beings. The reason we make mistakes, just like every other human being makes mistakes. Uh, It doesn't mean there's a conspiracy. It doesn't mean there's animus. It doesn't mean, uh, you know, incompetence. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that People are human and they make mistakes. Uh, and the important thing to do is to correct those uh, when you become aware of them, um, if, in fact, they are they are mistakes. So, um, so that's one step that we sh- certainly should take. Uh, and we should recognize our own fallibilities and our own limitations and recognize that I think it's very important that we go into our journalism um, uh, asking the right questions, not assuming that we have the answers, uh, but go seeking those answers. Uh, asking the right questions is hard enough job uh knowing what those questions are we are often seeing the world through a keyhole that's certainly the case in many areas in the middle east particularly in gaza because covering that 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 place now is just extraordinarily extraordinarily difficult um so um i think we need to uh in this country uh, I think we in the press need to get out more uh, into the community. We need to talk to all people in all corners of our society, uh, regardless of regardless of uh, I mean, all races, all ethnicities, all people of all classes, all all experiences, uh, you name it, uh, and all professions and and try to get a sense of uh, their concerns, their worries, uh, but also their expectations and their hopes. Um, and and reflect that uh, very fairly uh, and without any condescension uh, in our in our um, or judgment about them um, uh, in our in our in our pages and on the air and what on on our sites what have you. So uh, I think that's important for us to do. So another thing that's important for us to do is to lay out the evidence for people. Uh, we have the, the tools now where we can show people things that we could not show them before so if we're covering a court uh, hearing we can show them uh the evidence that's been presented in court we can show them the ruling we can annotate that ruling to highlight the particularly relevant portions of that ruling Uh, we have access to videos we have access to um to audio that we can present online so that people if they don't trust us they can go watch it for themselves listen for themselves read it for themselves Uh, So we need to be as transparent as we possibly can, and in almost every instance, uh, because we should just go into this with the assumption that people won't trust us. So we're presenting here, here it is, here's the evidence, here's the basis on which I wrote this story. So uh, those are some of the things that I think that uh, we ought to be doing.
0: A couple of quick questions before we wrap up. Um, Among the things that you expressed admiration for Jeff Bezos, stewardship of the Post was that he didn't treat it simply as a charity. You know, this guy could cut checks for a very long time before he noticed anything uh, uh, really diminishing his tens of billions of dollars of personal wealth. And yet he said this has to be a viable enterprise. And in under your stewardship and in Trump years, you know, the Post grew in size, in stature, uh, in, in digital subscriptions, which is really the, the mother load for for most newspapers at the moment, the seeking viability and, and some sort of financial stability. Uh, and that looked pretty good. In recent days and weeks we've learned that the post obviously well since your departure but has uh, embarked on an effort to buy out 240 uh, of its employees uh, about half of which will come from the newsroom. That'll represent roughly 10% of the newsroom and they'd also had a modest uh more modest reduction of staff earlier this year. Um the Bezos is appointed uh, acting CEO said essentially our uh, anticipated uh growth in revenues and in particular subscriptions were just wildly out of whack they They couldn't stand up to to real scrutiny as things now look um, What do you see now at a slight remove in terms of what we should uh what conclusions we should draw or what what we should uh how we should assess the the post strength and stability at the moment?
1: Well, I think it remains very stable because uh it's owned by such a wealthy individual. Um, also, I think that it has a great franchise. Um, I think it's important to remember, as you say, that those grew tremendously over the years. Uh, We had six straight years of profitability. That money was all reinvested. Uh, When I got there, there were about 580 people on the staff. We were having to make cuts about 35 in the first year. Uh, so, uh, And then probably another 50 or more uh, in every year in the years ahead uh what even after the uh cutbacks that they'll have uh at the post now in the newsroom they'll be left with i believe about 940 people which is not far off from where it was when i left uh that's that still represents significant growth for the post uh and and a very uh strong foundation for uh sustainability um they did uh overinvest they didn't ad- adequately prepare for a post trump era a lot of the growth at the post was driven by keen interest in politics, desire to hold Trump accountable, um, all of that. Uh, We needed to prepare better for a post-Trump era. It was particularly apparent for two reasons. One, after 2018, when um, the GOP lost the House. Um, And then, of course, we could see, for example, at the New York Times, that they were diversifying. Uh, They had invested hugely in in a cooking app. They had acquired Wirecutter, a product recommendation service. Uh, they had started a games initiative building on their famous, uh, New York times, uh, crossword puzzle, uh, all of that. And they were basically insinuating themselves into people's daily routines in a way that had nothing whatsoever to do with news. That was evident years ago. Uh, and, uh, we did need to prepare for that. I urged us to prepare for that, um. I think that it was a sense that things were going fine at the post because we did have six straight years of profitability um and but we didn't we did diversify we did invest uh in a lot of different things we expanded our technology coverage tremendously um we added some other things uh, but it was not to the same extent uh as the new york times and so now uh they have to make an adjustment. Uh, because they did overinvest, they did overexpect uh, in terms of what their subscriptions would be and what traffic would be like. Um, and I think it's important to re- not just to project from one year's performance into the into the future. I mean, I think it's important to recall that people predicted the post would slide into oblivion. Uh, that was about the time that I arrived, and people were looking at it very pessimistically and also even the new york times it wasn't that long ago that people were saying the new york times would uh slide into bankruptcy and that it would be overtaken by buzzfeed news and huffington post and all the upstart uh digital outfits that didn't happen the new york times turned itself around what that tells me is that uh, we shouldn't just extrapolate from one year's uh, financial difficulties into the future uh but that we should we should understand that news organizations can turn themselves around and i think that the post Will, I think that Bezos is very committed to the future of the post. He said so many times. I believe that um, uh, and right now they have to make some sort of adjustment uh, and, you know, look and debate whether it's the right approach or not. But um, clearly, if you're expected to lose, as they've projected $100 million this year, that's um, not a probably not a good call to do nothing. So let me ask you
0: this last brief question uh Marty Barron. Uh, What surprised you as you had time to reflect, as you pulled away from decades of uh, hurtling headlong into these uh, daily deadlines and long-term enterprise investigations, uh, what insight surprised you about your own tenure or about your own trade of journalism for all these years?
1: I don't know that it was a surprise. I mean, I, I think that there is, I I reflected a lot on the tensions within our profession. I think a lot of it is a a reaction to uh, Donald Trump and his attack on the press and his attack, attack on norms, uh, political norms in this country and worries about, uh, what, um, what his movement, if you want to call it that, uh, could usher in for the United States. Um, and so, uh, You know, I certainly found myself grappling with that and what my own views were on that and and how other people view it differently. Um, And but I, you know, I came to the conclusion that uh, I don't want to say I came to the conclusion that I was right. But I do have uh, uh, I do have some firm views on that. And I think it's really important for us to while we have to change the way that we deliver information to the public. Technology is changing that people want to receive their information in uh, on different devices and in different forms. uh, And we have to change with that um, and we have to our jobs are going to change. Uh, But I think we should adhere to the traditional values. I don't think the response uh, to uh, Trump's obliteration of norms should lead to uh, the press obliterate obliterating its own norms, its own standards, abandoning those standards. Um, I think we should stick to those standards if we go if we fear from those standards. I think we run a real risk of merely contributing to the erosion of democracy in this country.
0: Marty Barron, thanks so much. Thank you. David. Thanks for listening to this week's Q&A podcast. Remember, Q&A will be back with all new episodes starting January 28th.